0: Uh, you may remember that uh, when I introduced Luke's gospel um, back in November, I mentioned that Luke was providing an, orden, uh, an orderly and concise account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And that meant that he organized the events uh, a little differently than we might think. He, he organized them logically and topically rather than chronologically, Uh, And that helped him uh, fulfill the purpose for which he wrote. Um, And tonight is a perfect example of that description that I gave back in November. Um, Because we see that Jesus didn't come straight from Nazareth from the wilderness. Matthew and Mark push this episode a little later uh, in their Gospels, and Jesus himself attests to the fact that this happened a little later in verse twenty-three, when he he says that, um, or when he he attests to this being later, when he alludes to the fact that he's been in Capernaum prior to coming to his hometown. Um, but this isn't a problem because Luke is not being dishonest when he does this, and he's also not pitting himself and creating a different order so that he can put himself or uh, set himself apart from Matthew uh, and Mark. Um, he's doing this so that he can frame, his desire is to frame everything else that is to come uh, with this event, uh, not just the event itself, but what Jesus said as well as what happened. In other words, what he wants is to provide a lens. Uh, this, this situation or this experience in Nazareth becomes a lens through which Uh, Theophilus and his other readers, as well as you and I, see the rest of his gospel. It sets the context uh, that we'll see as we walk through uh, the entire gospel. And fortunately for us, this passage is laid out very simply. The outline is is obvious. We're going to look at five things. We're going to look at Jesus' ministry, his custom, his message, his rejection, and his future. And you'll find that outline in the back of your bulletin as we always do, and before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, uh, the end of preaching is to know Christ, for in Him is fullness of life. So in these moments, I ask that you would awaken our attention and refresh us. I ask that you would encourage us, convict us, and comfort us uh, as we see Him and hear his gospel tonight. I admit that I am weak and needy and unfit in and of myself for this task that you have called me to. So I ask in these moments for your support and strength and filling of your spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace. Um, Father, you know I have prayed. Um, all week for my preparation, and I pray tonight that I would communicate with clarity and uh, fluency and fervency and grace for the sake of Christ and His church, and I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, after being anointed by the Spirit at His baptism and After being led by the Spirit into the wilderness where He was tempted by the enemy, uh, we see in verses 14 and 15 that Jesus returns, Luke says He returns from the wilderness and begins His ministry uh, through or in the power of the Spirit. One commentator put it very well when he said, Jesus does not return from combat with Satan as a limping survivor, battered and mauled by the tempter, but returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And it's, His Spirit-empowered ministry was one of proclamation. Spirit-empowered teaching and preaching And next week, we are going to see him being compassionate and and healing and, and involved in what some people call a ministry of presence. But his primary ministry was that of proclamation. His ministry of presence rose up out of and pointed back to who he was and what he said and what he proclaimed. You see, he would go to the synagogues and he would read and explain and apply the scriptures and, and did so in such a way that word was spreading throughout the region. He was all the talk. And even though they, the people really didn't understand who he was completely, Luke says that they were, the initial responses was, were that of praise and, and, and glory, and actually, the word that he uses there says that even though they didn't completely comprehend who he was, they were, in fact, giving glory to God in the person of Jesus Christ. And I know it sounds simplistic, does it not? And, and it, honestly, in, in our day, many think it's too simplistic. To many, proclamation is an outdated means of ministry. For some, the mode of teaching and preaching needs an, an overhaul. The, the mode, uh, well, the packaging needs to be upgraded. For others, it's the content that needs to change, because to them the Scriptures are not sufficient to equip us for every good work, and it is, is, is insufficient to provide all that we need for life and godliness. But it seems to be a safe bet that if if the teaching and preaching was primary for Jesus, and the teaching and preaching was primary for the early church, teaching and preaching should be primary for the church today. We should be teaching God's Word, not the world's wisdom. We should be teaching and preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and not man's philosophy or psychology. We ought to be teaching and preaching absolute truth and not cultural mores. And that's because it is the reading and teaching and preaching of God's Word that He has ordained and blessed. The Shorter Catechism, question 89 Sums it up nicely. It says, The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. It is sufficient, and we should be teaching and preaching it. Now, we don't know how long he's been teaching and preaching throughout Galilee in general, or even in Capernaum, but verse 16 says, at some point he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, so it's a a homecoming of sorts, and when he arrived, he did what he had always done growing up, and what he had always been doing as an adult, it says, As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. In other words, what he did growing up and what he did as an adult and continued to do as an adult was to participate in the gathering for public worship. Each Sabbath, psalms would be sung, prayers would be prayed, uh, the, the, the scriptures, the law and the prophets in particular, would be read in Hebrew and translated into Aramaic, and then it would be explained. And then a benediction would be given. Needless to say, this was a very, very important part and reason for why Jesus is described as being filled with and increasing in wisdom and in favor with God and man. It was this custom. And again, it sounds simplistic. And again, there are those who believe it is too simplistic, and so much so that they believe that gathering for public worship on the Lord's Day is actually optional. And yet, the gathering for corporate worship was essential for Jesus, it was essential for the early church, and it is essential for us today. It should be essential for the people of God today. It was Jesus' custom. It should be our custom as well. And boys and girls, so please understand, you've heard me say this many times, but you are very, very fortunate, regardless of your age, whether whether, you are, uh, uh, whether you're two or three or you're 16, 17, 18 years old, you are very, very fortunate to be a part of families in which corporate worship is a custom. And and you have the responsibility as covenant children to make this your custom as well, not just the custom of your parents. And as you make it your custom, and as you grow from childhood to, to the teenage years and then to adulthood, as you make this your custom, should the Lord tarry, then you will make this a custom for your children as well. Again, it was essential for Jesus. It should be essential for us. Well, those assigned in the midst of worship, uh, those assigned to read the passages of Scripture during worship would stand to read and then would sit to explain. And on this particular Sabbath, we have read that it was Jesus' turn. It wasn't His turn. He was asked... To read and teach. And so he is, he stands and he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. And without the help of Isaiah 60, or without the help of chapters and verses, he unrolls the scroll and finds what we call Isaiah 61 1 and 2 and Isaiah 58. He knows the scriptures that well. And there's general agreement that there wasn't a fixed pattern or there wasn't a fixed reading schedule. Um, And so Jesus did what was common at that time, which was he had the freedom, like others who read, to select the scripture that he read. And he did so because it it describes his ministry as it would be and as it always would be. He was going to read what his message was and would continue to be. Let's read it again. Look at verse 18. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, before we look specifically at this passage, verse by verse, we need to look at the context of this passage that he quotes. And if you go back and look at Isaiah 59, you'll see in the first few verses the people of God are accused or charged with sin, and then they, of course, uh, confess their sin, but then... Because of their hopelessness, the Lord determines that he's going to intervene and says he's going to intervene on their behalf. And then this is said, the Lord says this in verse 21, a very important statement. The Lord says, and as for me, this is my covenant with them, my spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord from this time forth. And forevermore. And as John was saying, the Lord says, I'm going to make a covenant with my people, and my spirit is going to be upon the one who is both the suffering servant and the messianic king, the one that has been spoken of in the the prior um, 58 chapters uh, there in Isaiah. He says, And I'm going, the Lord says, I'm going to give him my words. That he is to speak, and my words are going to be with him and with them, my people, forever. And then the next three chapters, 60, 61, and 62, involve a description of the future restoration of Israel. And verses one and two of chapter 61 become the center point, right? The focal point that Jesus reads. And it speaks specifically of that one, that same one. Who the Spirit will be on, and who will proclaim the word of the Lord, and who will announce the age of restoration. And Jesus sits down, and Luke is summarizing here. He says, apparently, we get the idea that he said some other things, but Luke records this one thing. And Jesus says today the scripture this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing in other words jesus says that one that suffering servant that messianic king that's me the one that the spirit will be upon the the one who has been given the word That's me. I'm sitting here in your midst, and you've just heard me proclaim what I am going to do. And what he, and we ask, well, what did he specifically proclaim? What did he specifically say that he had come to do? And unfortunately, it wasn't what many expected. Many had a different idea. You can listen to these words from Philip and He says, "...the words are revolutionary, but not in the way that most people thought. When they heard what Jesus said, they assumed it was some kind of political manifesto. They expected an earthly salvation that would bring a physical deliverance. Some of them wanted Him to give the poor a higher standard of living, a social revolution." Some of them wanted him to heal the sick, a medical revolution. Others wanted him to overthrow the Romans, a political revolution. And Jesus had the power to do all of that, but it was not what he was called to do. Yes, he fed the hungry, gave sight to the blind, and released people from satanic oppression, all of which helped to prove that he was the Christ, showing that God's kingdom had come. Nevertheless, they were not his primary purpose. The quotation that he reads addresses or is directed to four groups. Uh, The first group, um, he says he had come for the poor. Uh, This was literal. His message wasn't just for the rich. It was for the poor as well. It was for those who were underprivileged. It was for those who were poor financially and disadvantaged economically. And, And really, it was for the common, everyday people who lived in poverty at the time. But it meant far, far more than that. Spiritually, it meant the poor in spirit. Spiritually, it meant those who were weak and meek and lowly of heart. It was for those that were spiritually bankrupt. The good news that he came to proclaim was for those who acknowledged their lack, spiritually speaking, they recognized and knew they had nothing to offer in and of themselves in regard to their salvation. They had nothing in and of themselves that would aid in their restoration or the, in their reconciliation with the Father. They were those who knew they had a need and couldn't fulfill it themselves. And the good news wasn't that He had come to provide a higher standard of living, but to provide the riches and the treasure beyond any and all value of earthly money or possessions. He came to proclaim and provide immeasurable and invaluable grace and forgiveness. He came proclaiming a heavenly treasure that moth and rust could not destroy. He came proclaiming that He was to offer far more than silver and gold. The offer was every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and those blessings were not to be earned or merited, but they were to be received fully and freely as a gift. And he was not only proclaiming, he was not only the one proclaiming that, he was the one that would provide it all, to provide every bit of it. Second, he says he came for captives. And again, the literal meaning of captives includes those who were taken prisoner during war or those who sold themselves into slavery to pay debts that they owed. But again, it means more than that. Spiritually, it meant those who were being held captive and were in bondage to their sin. Their sin and their guilt. They were servants of their sin. They were those who were under sentence and they were being condemned and had no hope of reprieve because of the offense, their offense toward a holy God. They were those whose souls And hearts and minds and wills were incarcerated in the deep, dark, dank prison of sin. And the good news was that he had come to not only proclaim liberty, but to provide liberty. He had come to proclaim the forgiveness of sin and that he himself would provide the forgiveness of sin, paying the debt that was theirs on their behalf that they might receive a full and final verdict of not guilty. He was proclaiming that he would provide that which would release them from captivity, the, the captivity of their souls, again, in their hearts and their wills and their minds. And he offered a reprieve that only God could give. And as we sang earlier, he came calling sinners out of their bondage and sorrow and night of sin and into the freedom and gladness and light of salvation. Third, he says he had come for the blind. Again, literal, but the literal was secondary and was to point to the spiritual that was primary. That spiritual blindness that involves ignorance to the things of God, not having any understanding of spiritual things, being in an overall darkness regarding sin and salvation. It's an inability to see and acknowledge sin. It's an inability to see and acknowledge our need. It's an inability to see and acknowledge that an offer is even available because we're Turned in on ourselves and thinking that we are the only way. And that spiritual blindness actually causes a false, for us to believe in a false sense of liberty where we think we are free, when in fact we're enslaved. And we could say, we we learn from, uh, I believe it's, uh, I think Mark 2, John 9 uh, the, the man who's blind and, and Jesus heals, we know that the spiritual blindness is congenital in nature. It's, it's something that affects every bit of us. It's not just an eye issue. It's a mind issue. It's a brain issue. So the healing that needs to take place involves both the eyes and the mind, and he says that's what he's come to do. He came to not only proclaim healing, but to provide healing, to remove the veil to bring those in darkness into the light, to to remove them from the shadows, and to provide the ability to see the bright and vivid glory of God and the colors that are a part of life in His name. And then finally, He had come for the oppressed. If you take these previous two examples and we put them together, these descriptions and put them together, it can describe one who was imprisoned by a tyrant. Um, What tyrants would do, these cruel and evil people would throw people into their prisons, they would beat them, and then they would throw chains on top of them, and then they'd put out their eyes. And the description spiritually is that, that we see those who, who were, were oppressed and their spirits had been crushed, right? And their, their lives were shattered and their hearts were broken. And sometimes it was due to their own sin and due to their own consequences of sin and due to their own, their own the wounding of their consciences. But many times it also involves things that by no fault of their own. In other words, it wasn't their sin, but it was the sin. They were being oppressed by the results of the sin that had been perpetrated against them. And Christ says, I've come to not only proclaim, but secure liberty and freedom for the oppressed as well. He would, in the words of James Foote, mitigate the pain, allay the fears, remove the distress of awakened and trembling souls. He is the great physician of souls, and the chief remedy He employs is His own blood. The Lord Jesus Christ restores and heals those who from any cause are bruised or broken with affliction. The bruised reed he will not break, and the smoking flax he will not quench. And again, this is available to those who have been afflicted by their own sin, but also the sin perpetrated against them, and and it includes those who have suffered under the powerful and sometimes unrelenting oppression of physical and emotional and sexual and even spiritual abuse. Well, he concludes by saying that all, all that he's come to proclaim and provide was a part of what the year of Jubilee pointed to. If you remember from our study of Leviticus, the year of Jubilee came every 50th year and a trumpet would blow, right, and, and debts would be paid, um, Prisoners were set free, land was returned, land that people had lost or sold, again, to pay for their debt, and all of that would be made right. And so in a very real sense, Jesus is saying, here's what I've come to proclaim, here's what I've come to provide, and my proclamation on this day is the trumpet. Restoration has begun. What you've waited for is now. Brothers and sisters, two points quickly here need to be made. And first, we need to always, always, always remember that we at one time were the poor, the captive, the blind, and the oppressed. Paul even says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The descriptions here are the descriptions of who we once were, but the Lord Jesus has met our every need. For those who have looked to Him in faith, our needs have been met. He he became poor so that we might be rich. He was chastised, beaten, and condemned for our sin and our guilt to pay our debt so that we would be set free. We were blind, but now we see because of what he has done for us. And so hear these encouraging words from Charity Bancroft. When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within, upward look and see him there who made an end to all your sin. It was the sinless Savior who died. Your sinful soul has been counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon you and me. Be encouraged. And second, this was not only for those who were hearing and not only for us, but it's for others as well. It's for, there, there are others in need. And I want us to think about this for just a minute. If this was simply, as some would like to make it to be, only for the literal poor, and only for the literal prisoner, and only for the literal blind, and only for the literal oppressed it would be very, very exclusive. The truth is the gospel is for all of us. There isn't a person alive who isn't spiritually poor, or enslaved to their sin, or spiritually blind or oppressed, and what the spiritual meaning of this passage does is it moves it from being exclusive to being inclusive. There's no one left out. And because of that, we should be indiscriminately sharing the gospel to the poor and the rich. To those in prison, but to those who are free. To those who are sick, but to those who are physically well. To those who are oppressed, but also to the oppressor. The gospel is for us all. It's the same message that that we've heard that we're called to proclaim. Others are to hear it, so we're to proclaim it, but we're also to proclaim and help others exercise the same grace and forgiveness that they themselves have received. So we must remember In the words of commentator Daryl Bach, Jesus was not a social, economic, and political revolutionary. So the primary mission of the church is not to confront society's structures so they can be transformed. It is the primary goal to confront individuals within these structures and pursue changes in individuals that impact the structures they serve. The gospel does have social implications, not so much directly for society as it does for how the redeemed community, you and I, approach humans and social structures. He goes on to say, so compassion, concern, love, truth, and service are to be concretely expressed by the church just as they were evidenced in Jesus. But again... Like Jesus, our primary ministry is one of proclamation. In verse 22, the people, Luke says, speak well of him. They're, they're speaking well of him, and, and the, the grace within his words, it actually says they spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that they were, uh, that were coming from his mouth. But notice it didn't last long. It doesn't last long, and unfortunately, they... They couldn't reconcile what was being said with who was saying it. They're marveling at what he said. They're marveling at his presentation. Uh, you know, they're intrigued by the content that they're hearing, but they can't get beyond the fact that it's being spoken by the old carpenter's boy from down the street. So as Jesus does throughout his ministry, we see him do this throughout the Gospels, he addresses them before they actually voice their objection. He steps in and beats them to it, and he doesn't mince words. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to read through this, but I'd like to summarize it. He basically says, look, I know you want me to prove that I am who I am saying I am. I know you want me to do what I did in Capernaum so that you can believe and know that I am who I am claiming to be, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it because you wouldn't believe me even if I gave you those signs that you're looking for. You're not going to believe me no matter what. So, like Elijah, like Elisha, I'm I'm going elsewhere. Because the good news isn't just for you in Nazareth. The good news is for Galilee, the whole region of Galilee. Actually, it's beyond Galilee. And if you want to know the truth, it's not just for Jews, it's for Gentiles as well. It always has been. I'm going to go where people don't need to see to believe. I'm going to go where they will believe and therefore see. Because this is all about grace and faith and me and what I've done. It's not about you or what you look like or where you live or what you believe or whatever your religious practices are. It's not about you. It's about me. And it shouldn't surprise us to know that they didn't like what he said. Because he basically pushed every pride button they had. He had had insulted them spiritually and intellectually and ethnically and nationally. And we know how deeply it affected their pride by how they responded. They tried to kill him. But he wouldn't die on this day because his time had not yet come. Luke says, but passing through their midst, he went away. This was the first, again, remember this is the lens, this is the first of many times that he would speak the truth. People would hang on his his words, but they would ultimately reject him, And, and they would seek to kill him. He he would speak, he would wound their pride, and they would seek to kill him. And in the future, in the fullness of time, when God's plan had come to fruition according to his providence, Jesus would finally willingly turn himself over to the leaders that be to in fact be killed on a cross. And it would be on that day that he would deliver on the promise that He proclaimed on this day in Nazareth. Two things quickly as we close. As I've said, the proclamation of the gospel is our ministry. But we need to remember that rejection comes with that. There is the very... uh, the possibility is very real that the message is not only rejected, but we ourselves are rejected. And as many of you know, that comes particularly in the midst of our families. And so in our encounters with the lost, again, especially within our families, may we be thoughtful and consider... Again, in the words of Philip Ryken, he says that we should consider whether whether to be a when and where, to be a caring servant, or a confronting prophet. In all of our encounters with the lost, but in particular with family. And secondly, may we ourselves never become so familiar with Jesus. May we never grow um, in our knowledge and understanding to the point that it breeds contempt. May our ever-growing knowledge and understanding of Him fan the flame of an ever-increasing awe and wonder of a Savior who died for us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.